Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this week is a little personal. I'm talking with Kristen Taylor, who is an old college friend of mine, and she has written a book called Shipwrecked in L.A., Finding Purpose in a Life Adrift. Now, this is more theoretical when it comes to productivity. If you're listening to this for tips and tricks, you'll hear some, but this is going to be more about dealing with seasons of change in life as well as, you know, maybe dealing with a quarter-life crisis or even a cyclical type crisis, dealing with your identity. And I believe it's important for us to talk about that and deal with that when it comes to doing the work we're supposed to do, because it's not just about doing the work that we're supposed to do. It's also about doing the things and doing the work and the career and calling that we want to do and that we know we're supposed to do. And if you've listened to any of the other interviews previously, you know that for a number of those interviewees, they either quit their jobs and moved into an entrepreneurial type status like, for example, Cliff Ravenscraft or were fired like Pat Flynn. And I think you can admit they're both pretty successful. So anyway, uh, this I probably share a little bit more personal uh, information about myself in this one than I have in some of the previous ones. Nothing so jarring that it's crazy. But I really hope you enjoy this interview and decide to check out Kristen's book. This week, it is a little bit different for me. This interview is different because I'm welcoming Kristen Taylor to the show. And she and I are alumni of actually my current workplace, Indiana Wesleyan University, and we were friends in college. And so this is a little bit different. I might share some more personal stuff than you might get, be used to. Uh, anyway, welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. So your book, the official title, what is the official title? The official title is Shipwrecked in L.A., Finding Purpose and Meaning When Your Dreams Crash. I read the book. The mainstream term that's used to describe what this book is talking about is a quarter-life crisis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some people would wonder, well, why would you talk about a quarter-life crisis on a productivity <laughs> podcast? The reason that I call this show Beyond the To-Do List but then added the tagline Personal Productivity Perspectives is so that I'd be able to have people tell their stories and that, that in that way, people would be able to enter in and maybe apply other people's experiences to their own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I really kind of see this as being a more theoretical episode. But I think we're going to get to some really practical stuff. So, yeah, good. So what is Shipwrecked about? Shipwrecked is about the shipwreck that we hit in our 20s when we call into question everything we think we know about ourselves, about the world around us, about our faith, um, if we choose to have a, a, you know, a faith choice. And it's the process by which we start to make new meaning out of that. So it also tells my personal story of, you know, I went out to L.A. right out of college uh, with my husband, Dwayne, believing that I was called to be a missionary to Hollywood. I had spent some time at IWU, you know, they have a study abroad program, and I had gone out to film school in L.A., I worked at Nickelodeon Movies, and felt like this was really where I was meant to be for my life. And so then after we got married, Dwayne and I moved back to L.A., and about eight weeks after I got there, everything I thought I understood about 
my calling, my sense of purpose, direction came crashing down around me. And I spent the next four years trying to figure out then what on earth I was supposed to do with myself um, and where I was going. So that's what the book is about. It's not just my story, but also I weave in research from young adult identity scholars about the fact that I'm not the only one that this happens to. (laughs) This happens to a lot, a lot, a lot of us um, in our 20s and even into our early 30s. And this is actually a new stage of human development that they have been researching for the last 10 or 15 years. And so I really wanted to bring that to the table and share my story, but then also help readers see, you know what, this might be exactly the the, the narrative that's happening to you. Let me give you a language for a vocabulary for what you're experiencing. You're not the only one. Yeah. When you say, you know, 20s and 30s, are we saying that this isn't going to be applicable to anybody past that point in time? Well, I think any, you know, I I think we're always on a chart for growth. We're always changing. But no, this research is really, you know, really pertains to 18 to 34-year-olds because there have been social and economic changes um, in the last 30, 40, 50 years that have created this new stage of human development. And um, Jeffrey Jensen Arnett has really spearheaded the, the research on this, talking about how a shift from an industrial-based economy to an in- information-based economy has put a new emphasis on higher education. So now people aren't just graduating from high school and go and getting you know the job at the factory that will pay them benefits and allow them to afford a house, and then they can get married and have a career. No, now... We have to go get our BAs, and now our BAs aren't enough. Now we have to get our MAs, and now our MAs aren't enough. Now we have to get a PhD, and so there's a way in which adulthood is kind of getting postponed. There's a, ch- a changing timetable of adulthood is what is what they're calling it, and so that's one of the factors that created this time t- uh, changing timetable of adulthood. There's a couple other reasons why we're in a unique stage of history um, that 20-somethings are facing things they've never had to face before. Yeah, I was going through that and I kept thinking, you know, this this sounds right. It feels like partially what I experienced in that same time frame because you're I think you're like what a year younger than me. Even now, I feel as I was reading through this that like there's some remnant type mm-hmm. pieces of driftwood, I'll use that, that mm-hmm. I'm still dealing with from mm-hmm. this period of time where mm-hmm. you know, there just wasn't things that were mm, figured out in in this point in time this this mm-hmm. transition to adulthood so mm-hmm. what are those tradition what have been seen as the traditional mm-hmm. transition points or phases or mm-hmm. um how, how do you know in other words that you're transforming from a per, you know an adult a, a, an adult teen into like an adult <laughs> person yeah <clears throat> well traditionally they, they sort of point to five pillars one you know uh graduating two getting married three finding a career Four, owning a house. Five, having a ch- having children. It, not necessarily in that order, but the you know psychologists and developmental theorists have kind of agreed that these were the five sort of pillars of adulthood. And they used to happen. Um, used to you know they believed that they happened in quicker succession. I think you know if you really look at it <clears throat> uh, now, it's it's you know it's all over the place. I mean it, it happens much later, you know, one of the reasons being that 
higher education is now open to women. So women are going back to school and they don't need a man to have a place in society anymore. We can get our degrees. And so a lot of us are saying, I don't want to have kids until later. I don't want to settle down and have a family until later. And so, you know, Jeffrey Jensen, Arnett, I refer to him again, um, he did some research in 2000 and showed that the median age of marriage in the 60s was like 22 for women, 23 for men. And now I think um, as of 2000, it was uh, 20 six for women, 27 for men, I would argue it's probably even later now in 2013. Um, <clears throat> it's probably more like in the early 30s, late 20s. So, you know, so those sorts of things have stretched out. The, these five pillars are kind of happening in, in sort of a, a haphazard, not haphazard, but just um, they're not falling in lockstep fashion anymore. They're yeah, kind of yeah. happening in a different, in a different timetable on a different speed. So, in other words, the the pattern that you you used to follow in this season of life, mm-hmm. uh, as you were transitioning from you know mm-hmm. eighteen into thirty something, mm-hmm. that the pattern is kind of broken, mm-hmm. or not necessarily broken, just kind of shifted, mm-hmm. and that there have been some things that have caused that shift. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I think it's a great thing. You know, what's created is more time for us to figure ourselves out. I think part of the reason, and this is just me hypothesizing, I don't have any research to back this up, but I think the reason why the midlife crisis was so huge back in the day was because people didn't have time mm-hmm. to face it. They were, you know, graduating, getting married, jumping into their lives full swing, and then it wasn't until they were 40 or 50 when their kids go back to school when suddenly they had time to kind of step back and say, well, what am I doing with my life? And I think this see this new sort of phase of development that's, that's come about has created the time for us to really recenter and kind of figure out where are we going. We can, um, uh, Jennifer Tanner talks about, we have time to sort of find out like, well, do I like this job or do I not? Do I want to try this job? Do I like this relationship or not? Maybe I want to try this relationship. And then then we, we recenter and we, we recommit then at a later date when we really settle into, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. This is who I want to you know, be with for the rest of my life. This is where I want to settle. You know? um, so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. But what I think the trick is is that I think culture and society has been a little bit slow to catch on to the fact that um, there's this new stage of human development that needs a new structure to help support it. And the researchers really look at the early 1900s. You know, at the turn of the 1900s, um, adolescence didn't exist. Uh, but it was around, you know, the early 1900s when they realized, hey, wait a second, these 11 and 12 and 13-year-olds are going through something pretty significant. And that's when they created the term adolescence. And that's when they started, they created junior high. Mm-hmm. The argument now is, well, that is that same thing happening with young adulthood, and what can we do um, to help support this new stage of human development? Because so many young adults are graduating from college, they have these huge loans they have to pay off. They can't get full time. They can't get full time jobs that will help pay their cost of uh, living. The new, you know, the new um, entry level position is the unpaid internship. So. You know, there's there's some real needs here that I think we as a society and cl- a culture can really be looking to meet in new ways and creative ways. And I think some organizations are doing that, but but not everybody. Yeah. How did you settle, or how did the 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 metaphor of mm-hmm. shipwreck come mm-hmm. to you to to regard this time or season that you lived through? 
I really got it straight out of the research. You know, I started writing my story when I was pregnant with Noelle. Um, she was, she's five now, so this was six years ago. And I just felt like everything I had been through in L.A., because I did end up working in the film industry um, and then choosing to leave, um, I just felt like this was something I needed, a story I needed to share. But the more I wrote it, the more I was like, I just, why will anyone care? You know, like, this right. is just me, little old Kristen Taylor. Like, why does anyone care what I did in my 20s? Uh, when I was, let's see, what year was it? I think it was around 2000, 2008. Um, Dwayne decided to go back to get his master's. And he decided to stop, study college counseling and student development. And one night, he was reading this book called Big Questions, Worthy Dreams by Sharon DeLose Parks, who is gracious enough to endorse my book. Um, she, he was reading through it, and she talked about this term called shipwreck. Um, and she used the term to talk about the thing that triggers in us as 20-somethings the complete dismantling of our identity. And she says there are any number of triggers. It can be a loss of a career. It can be a loss of a relationship. You know, you could be engaged and then you break up. Or you could be with someone you think you're going to be with the rest of your life and you break up. It could be a, an injury. It could be something like the, the, the intellectual constructs that you thought were really sound all of a sudden you realize don't work anymore. And it just completely unravels you, you know. And Dwayne put the book down and he's like, Kristen, I think that's what happened to us because he was going through his he had gone through his shipwreck too and was still kind of coming to terms with it as was I Mm. and I was like that's it we've that's what she's talking about I had never heard anybody put a word to what we had experienced and and then Eric it was like I could just go down the line I could I it was like I could list all of our friends and be like they're going that's their shipwreck their shipwreck their shipwreck I mean it was like all of us were hitting these shipwrecks and I think we all were feeling like failure. We were feeling like we were maybe going a little bit crazy. We were feeling like we were the only ones, you know. But that term suddenly, like, turned on this light. And I was like, oh, we're normal. (laughs) Like, this this is normal. (laughs) And so I was like, that's what I need to write about. I need to bring this into my – this isn't just about me. This is about something larger that's going on that I want other people – to have a vocabulary for just like I was giving a vocabulary for it. And so then throughout the course of the book, you're, you're going back and forth between the narrative of your story mm-hmm. as well as interjecting at key points mm-hmm. this research. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, and I, I think you're familiar with him, um, mm-hmm. that's what gave it very much a blue like jazz Donald Miller ah. feel to me as I read it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm honored. So, yeah. well, there you go. Um, <laughs> and and that really, I mean, because it, it kept going back and forth between that. And it was, you know, his whole thing about blue, blue, uh, blue like jazz is that God is like jazz music. It, he doesn't resolve. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, some easy answer thing. And mm-hmm. and I really love that. And yeah. And then it even felt again like, oh, what's his other book? The one that's A Million Miles and a Thousand... Yeah. Yeah. Years and and I might be swapping terms there, but that's the one where he talks about screenwriting. Yes, uh, the process of Blue Like Jazz, the movie, and it, it's not only going through a process of how they wrote that, but then also like the narrative of a story of him changing his life, the character of himself in his own life, 
mm-hmm. trying to make himself more exciting in his real life because of that. And <laughs> yeah. I hope to have Donald on the show someday. But <laughs> anyway, he can explain it better than me then. Yes. Yeah, no, it's excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So, uh, so I say that because I know um, a number of people have read that book. This is very much, uh, for me at least, this was very much a similar style, especially because I know that you use – What's funny is I think that you – you can tell me if this is true or not. I think that you have taken what you learned mm-hmm. from film school, the art of film and technique and all that, mm-hmm. and have kind of applied that to the way you use words when writing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to to paint – you know, to to use, touch on the emotions yeah. using different and, – and the, the mind yeah. using all the different sensory elements that yeah. you can – yeah. Um, conjure with the words you're using. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, Eric, when I'm writing, I want it to unfold in front of the reader as if they're watching it on film. I want them to feel it, to see it, to hear it. I don't want to just tell them, well, this is what happened to me when I was working at the film financing company. I want them to be there in that moment experiencing it with me. So, yeah, I, I, I'm so glad that you got that because that was absolutely what I was trying to do. Yeah. And actually, one of the moments was because you're doing that really just I had to put the book down because you met somebody who was, you know, indirectly very influential during my early years in, well, mm-hmm. junior high, Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which I just, I I had to, I was like, no way. No way you met Jonathan Frakes. And for people that don't know, which you all should, um, Jonathan Frakes was Captain Will Riker on Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> and he was working in your office when you were an intern. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a surreal moment for me. That was sort of the first moment where I was like, whoa, I'm in Hollywood. You know, I had sort of been floating around. It was my first day interviewing at Nickelodeon Movies for the internship. And, and I really floated into the office on a bubble. I just was so enamored with the glam, the glamour of being on the Paramount lot and all these iconic, you know, sort of um, places on the lot that you see in movies. And... I was waiting for my interview, and, and then this guy, like, walked through the foyer in this Hawaiian shirt and khaki shorts and or cargo shorts, and he was so kind, and he smiled at me, and he said hi, and he had these, you know, this beard and these bright blue eyes, and I just, it was like so, I, because I was so out of place, I couldn't, I couldn't place him. I was like, I felt like, and I think I say in the book, like, I had just met my uncle all of a sudden in the middle of, of Nickelodeon movies, and so... Um, then afterwards, I asked once, you know, they gave me the internship, Allie, the lady that, or the lady that had hired me, um, she said, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, who was that guy that just walked through? And she, she goes, oh, that, that's Jonathan Frakes, you know, Captain Riker. And I just, I was like, whoa, because I, you know, at the time that um, Star Trek The Next Generation came out, I, we were living in England at the time, my family were missionaries over there in um, I just remember clear as day. Every day I would come home from school, or, um, or like I think it was once a week it aired. I would get my ice cream from the ice cream truck, and I would sit down and I would watch uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation. And I mean, Will, Jonathan Frakes was as much a part of my week as some of my friends at school, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a really, it was a surreal moment for me, where um, you know, sort of. The, these ideals and dreams came crashing into reality. And I was like, I'm here. This is what I have dreamed about since I was 12 years old working in the film industry, and I'm here, you know? So 
yeah, it was a significant moment for me. Yeah, I, I again, part of why it shocked me was because he was very much a part of my life when I was young because mm-hmm. my family would do uh, our kind of a ritual where even from the very first, I don't know how long it lasted, but the very first time they aired Next Generation, we would get, it was a Saturday night for us in the States mm-hmm. at that time, and we would sit down with Little Caesar's Pizza, and we would <laughs> eat that, and we would watch Star Trek. And it just mm-hmm. be, we did it the first time, and then it was like, hey, let's do it again. And we just kept doing it. <laughs> and then I just, I don't know, I don't know that uh, everybody in the, I know that we didn't keep doing that forever, but I know that I particularly watched that show straight through till it's end Mm -hmm. run Mm -hmm. and i think let's see it was like two years ago i actually went through the entire series again on netflix oh that's such a good idea yeah and and i realized there was literally maybe two episodes that i had never seen (laughs) and i don't know why i hadn't seen them but (laughs) i had seen them all and i remembered them as i was going through them Uh even though i'd only ever seen them like once well, and it's so funny because, I mean, how many years after that show did I see him? I mean, when did the show end? Right. Uh, 94. Okay. So this was 2001. I was I was there at Nickelodeon Movies. And Eric, he looked the same. I mean, he had the same beard and everything. Mm-hmm. Like, he, you know, sometimes actors, when they're not on a show, their, their appearance, you know, they do their own thing. But he still had that Captain Riker look, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he pretty much stayed the same. And this is way too long of a, a William Riker tangent but that's okay um he from the point he kind of landed physical feature wise at the end of the television series and even into the three or four movies that they did Uh um yeah he he pretty much stayed the same in fact i've seen pictures recently because he he directs episodes of two shows that i watch uh leverage which which just ended okay and burn notice okay which i love Mm -hmm. anyway Mm -hmm. so so you had a lot of different strange experiences like that, not just kind of you had, you know, your I mean, heck, coming from, you know, Marion, little old Marion, Indiana mm-hmm. to yeah. Hollywood. You not only you had your, you know, culture shock mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. Um, but then you're starting to work in the the film industry a little bit and kind of coming up in roadblocks. You the you mm-hmm. and your husband, Dwayne, are f- figuring out, you know, OK, how do we make this work? Mm-hmm. Job-wise, mm-hmm. you know, what's expected of us, um, what do you really want to – you know what you really want to do, but you're not quite sure how to do what you really want to do. Mm-hmm. Or at least it's what you thought you wanted to do and mm-hmm. you haven't really tested it yet. Yeah. And you kind of go through a bunch of different, you know, ups and downs and stories. And I want to ask, how would somebody maybe identify if, – if they're not necessarily in an age range – even maybe they are in the age range that mm-hmm. typically this is – the shipwreck is is part of life these mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. How would they maybe sense that they are in a shipwreck or dealing with, you know, pieces mm-hmm. of one later on? Is there their kind of Im- emotional cues or yeah. just thoughts that they might have? Yeah, I think without getting too, you know, sort of um, academic on you, you know, there are definitely signs. I think. As an outsider looking in, the things that we're going through are, first of all, we're beginning to see that the world is a lot more complex and nuanced than we had thought. So, so you know, some of these things that we've held true begin to shake up beneath us. 
And that can be really unnerving, especially, you know, for people who were raised in the church, for their parents and for them to start to feel like they're, you know, they're questioning their faith, they're questioning this worldview that their family has given them. Um, but that is a really typical stage of young adult identity development. And usually the shipwreck is what triggers that starting to rethink things. The other thing that you start to realize when you're in your shipwreck is that that knowledge is, and again, I don't want to be too academic, so this is, I'll give you the academic side and then I'll give you the personal side. Okay. How's that? Sure, the academic sure. side. So you're beginning to see the world is more complex and more complex and more nuanced than you had originally thought. The other thing you're starting to realize is that knowledge is socially constructed, right? Like this is not, um, you know, this is something that we can decide um, as a group what we're going to think and believe about certain things, um, even about the Bible. I mean, like how many different people, there are lots of different denominations that interpret it different ways, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This can be a really, you know, like this can be, uh, I was just talking to my cousin about this who's looking at studying biblical studies, and he's like, I'm a little bit nervous because he's like, I'm going to start reading things that are going to make me question how I've originally thought about even my interpretation of Scripture. Again, this is a really typical sort of young adult identity uh, development stage uh, and it's a healthy one and it's a good one uh, because ultimately you have to move to a place of uh, personal conviction in the middle of all of that and all of the young adult identity scholars talk about you don't want to stay in a place of cynicism and relativism whether you are a person of faith or not because it doesn't it may not be faith for you that's shaken up it could be something else you know it could be your ideas about relationships ideas about the way your parents raised you or you know your the way your coaches coached you or you know whatever um, or what you thought about any number of subjects you're studying but ultimately, you don't want to stay in this place of cynicism and relativism. You want to move through to a place of personal conviction. So how do you figure out how to find that personal conviction amidst all these questions? And then the, the, sort of another phase is where you start to realize that you as a person can have an internal compass that helps you decide these things. And so ultimately, shipwreck is triggering this, this change for us of moving from really living our life according to the outside voices around us that have been so good for us until that point, that have kept us on track and, and helped us grow up. But then in our young adult years, we need to really step back from those and be like, okay, I've got to move towards an inner sense of direction here that's going to help me make my decisions. And I can still use what my parents taught me and I can still use what my mentors and my coaches, you know, taught me, but I'm going to start to look at them a bit different and decide what I want to keep and what I want to let go. So that's like the academic side of signs of what's going on in shipwreck and how you know you're in a shipwreck. From a personal standpoint, you just are freaked out. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're feeling panicked and freaked out, you're probably going through a shipwreck, right? Like, if you feel like the world is just turned upside down, um, you're probably going through a shipwreck uh, because it, it really is what you feel like everything that has held you together until that point. I mean, I at the risk of sounding a little melodramatic, when I hit my shipwreck, I really felt like a piece of me died. I was like, I don't, what do I do now? I was like, I, I don't know what direction. To, I have spent my whole life dreaming about this. Now what do I do with myself? I've studied for this. This is all I've ever planned on. Now what am I supposed to do with myself? And I remember just feeling a lack of direction and a lack of sort of a lack of sense of what I was supposed to do with myself. I really felt like I was, you know, to continue the metaphor, floating around on the open seas with all the debris around me. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question at all. It's a great question. Um, 
Well, I can, as I was reading and you were using from the personal side of things, Mm -hmm. because I hadn't really thought about the the, uh, Mm -hmm. academic side of things prior to reading this, honestly, other than some of the the industrial-based economy to information-based society Mm -hmm. stuff, which, you know, I have to reference the fact that a number of the people that I've interviewed previously for the show are all entrepreneurial type people who have, I know, gone through this, whether they know that's what they've done or not. Mm-hmm. It, it has happened to them because they've either, you know, been fired or quit or been dissatisfied with and, and finally started dealing with their true self mm-hmm. and figuring it out, you know, as they go and have moved on and are now just having a, a quality of life or mm-hmm. at least a, a clarity of calling maybe yes uh-huh. that they didn't have before mm-hmm. and and I want to stress that's where some of this theoretical moves into the practical is the fact that you can have I mean again the show's called beyond the to-do list for a reason is I don't want to just talk about uh-huh. okay it's the stuff you need to do as well as the it's it's about the work you want to do yeah yeah and and oh. not you know so there's so much hope in this. I mean, you know, the sort of the crux of the the title and, and what got me going into the research is pretty dismal, this idea of shipwreck. But ultimately, the reason why I wrote this book is because there's, there is deep joy and gladness on the other side of shipwreck because the new reality that you step into is so much richer than anything you could have imagined before. And, you know, Sharon Deleuze Parks talks about the fact that um, we even though what we gain doesn't somehow nullify the pain of shipwreck, we wouldn't trade the pain away because we don't want to settle for a lesser version of reality. And I think for me, I remember that moment of joy that just swept over me after uh, going through my shipwreck because ultimately I ended up working in the film industry, which I write about in the book, and I left. And I ended up teaching uh, writing at the college level and I had Noel. And I remember this one day, uh, at the time I was, you know, teaching at two different um, private Christian schools in Los Angeles, and I had Noel with me, and I was in, you know, it was on a day that I wasn't teaching class, and Noel and I were coming back from a play date. And I remember driving up the freeway, and it just, like, swept over me. As I looked in the mirror, and I saw this beautiful little girl, you know, waving her chubby little hands at me, and I thought about how I had never realized that this was the life I could have. I could teach and write and be a mother all at the same time. And I had found a really great balance of those three things and how all of those things connected for me at a really deep place that played off of my strengths, played off of things that I was really interested in. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have that vision of my life when I was in college. I didn't know that that was possible, that I could do that. I didn't know that that was something to strive for. Um, but ultimately, my shipwreck, set me on a course to get there. And, it, and for me, it was so much more than just finding the right career um, because now I'm still teaching, still de- de- being a mom, still work uh, writing. But for me, it was, it was so important to hit the shipwreck because there were significant misconceptions I had about myself and the world around me that needed to be dismantled, absolutely. And I would never have moved into that place of real depth and fullness of life until I looked at those skeletons head on and and I got rid of them and I and I destroyed them and reconstructed a new a healthier version of myself and the world around me and ultimately that's what shipwreck does for us is it 
um, sweeps out the corners of our lives and it's a very painful thing uh, but it then sets us up to then start making a new sense of purpose and meaning in the world that's much richer uh, than anything we, w- we could have done before with these sort of faulty premises um, and foundations. And that I think is where I would kind of transition and I'll share another personal thing mm-hmm. is for those people who think well uh, you know maybe I did already experience this or for some that maybe haven't ever experienced this, one of the things, it's imperative, like you said, that we accept the pain, that we take the, you know, whatever form this takes, mm-hmm. that, yeah, like you said, facing those those skeletons mm-hmm. and, and actually dealing with them. And, mm-hmm. you know, for so for example, for myself, that's actually something that I'm currently doing. And I'm not going to go into like, you know, specifics, mm-hmm. but some people know. I had decided to take a, a season of the show off, or mm-hmm. not a season, but a break in between mm-hmm. what I called seasons, and we just started season two again. Mm-hmm. And there was a reason for that built in ahead of time. What mm-hmm. I didn't realize was that there were plans made for me in that break of time off that uh, <laughs> I didn't know were going to be plans that I was going to have to deal with. And so, mm-hmm. you know, now I'm actually, I'm even now, as I'm going to be turning in like six weeks or so, mm-hmm. turning 35, which is past supposedly the age for a shipwreck, mm-hmm. according to, you know, research or whatever, mm-hmm. I still have remnant issues that because I either, you know, pushed them down or didn't deal with it or mm-hmm. or, or whatever, wasn't equipped to, uh, all the, any of the above, mm-hmm. I'm still working on them. And the thing is, is that I actually don't have... I mean, it's it's going to be hard work, and there's a lot of work to be done to to deal with them. Yeah. But I don't have fear; I have hope, and yeah. I have kind of a security in knowing, yeah. oh, you know what, this is going to work out fine. Yeah, yeah, there's some heavy lifting to do, but mm-hmm. it'll be done. Yes, so. yeah, and the other key is really finding good company for yourself and for ourselves when we're going through that. Um, and I think. That's something I talk a little bit about in the book, but they, the Wesleyan Publishing House asked me to write a second book about, um, is how do you find good company and how do you be good company? Because that is so key to really navigating the shipwrecks and navigating what you're going through now. And um, I think we probably need company for our, good company for our entire lives. Right. These are not, the, the thing that's interesting about good company is they're not mentors, they're not people that stand ahead of us and know, you know, necessarily know more than us and have more power than us. They're people that actually walk behind us and push us forward when we are resistant to being challenged and looking at things head on, but are also there to catch us when what we're looking at gets too heavy for us to bear on our own. They're really unique. They fit a really unique role in society. And I think uh, most often good company comes in the form of our peers, of our friends. Again, some of the research I'm doing on good company right now is good company simultaneously challenges and supports us, uh, simultaneously pushes us to really work through these things on our own, but also know that we need to be connected to community in order to have the support we need um, to be healthy. And so I think, you know, it's so interesting that you bring that because I think, oh, you know, I was talking to another researcher. Her name is... um, Marsha Baxter-Magolda, who's another lady that I really reference a lot in the book, and she was saying that new research is coming out now that's saying that we don't hit, you know, the shipwreck and then finding purpose and meaning all in a linear fashion, 
but that it's really cyclical. And so what you're saying doesn't surprise me at all. I think that's an experience for a lot of us that we hit shipwreck and then we sort of come back around and revisit it again and then move out and then come back around. And there's a way in which we're sort of working through the layers of it and that you're probably, you know, you hit your shipwreck a while ago, but are now sort of circling back around and working with, you know, dealing with another layer of it and then coming back out again. And that that's also really... um, a true way that people are experiencing this whole journey uh, right now. It's not linear. It doesn't fall like, you know, it doesn't fall in one right after the other. Right. If I think about it that way, then I'd have to probably be honest and say that this is probably my third shipwreck. Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. And and that's the other thing too. You can hit unfortunately, we can hit more than one shipwreck. <laughs> Good news for us. <laughs> Yay. Oh. Yay. Yeah, and actually I was going to say that because I, I want to move into a little bit more of the process of writing the book because obviously that happened after the fact of yeah. the book mm-hmm. where the book leaves off in your life. Mm-hmm. I know a little bit more where we kind of reconnected once mm-hmm. the advent of social media happened and yes. Facebook and everybody's like, hey, college friends <laughs> and all that. That um, I started reading your blog, and you were consistently blogging. So I saw, I knew some of what was going on there, and I knew had yeah. started already writing. You just didn't have yeah. the the academic portion, yes. like, like Dwayne suggested, to to add yeah. to it. Yeah. What was the process like when you were writing the book? Your daughter Noel was a couple years old, something like that, well, and I, you I, were teaching too. How did you balance yeah. all that? Yeah, well, and I just, just to tag off on the last question you said, I think I, you know, where the book end leaves off is is sort of, there was still more processing happening for me even after that. Um, and so I think, you know, even now I'm still, even last year, <laughs> I was still processing so much of what had happened in my 20s. Um, so I think that's a really valid point that needs to be made that this is not something you just keep tight in a box and it's all done. And then you move on and suddenly you're 30, you know, you're 35 and you're all done and you're better. Um, but so all that to say, yes. So I, um, I started writing this book when I was pregnant with Noelle. I did the um, book proposal um, during that time, sent it off, got it rejected by, you know, four or five different publishers. But then I decided just to start writing it. And then I wrote it during the year that she was born. Because we lived in L.A., I had to go back to work because we couldn't afford rent <laughs> if I didn't work. So when she was four months old, I went back to work. And I really wrote this. I mean, it took me like three or four years to write this book. And I did it while I was teaching and and taking care of her while Dwayne went back to grad school I was writing it so I had it finished this let's see the summer before uh, my son was born I think that's how it works I'm getting my it's all kind of blending in there Um, but yeah I sold it the Christmas before Nathan was born and then I turned in uh, the final sort of manuscript to them shortly thereafter. So anyway, yeah, it was like a good four or five year process of writing this book through all of life's ups and downs and everything. Yeah. What I was reading your blog for was a lot. I was very much identifying a lot with the, some of the parenting issues that you were sharing <laughs> in terms of Noel and her personality and, <laughs> and who's very much like my daughter, Emily, who is eight. Um, and then, yeah. Your son, Nathan, he was born, let's see, he's like a year and a half or a little over. Yes, that's right, because you, your son and my son are really close in age. Yeah, it's like about a month apart yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, how much time then? I mean, you're talking the span mm-hmm. of you were mm-hmm. pregnant with her 
mm-hmm. and then you finished it before him. Yes. So that's a span of what four years or so. Yeah. To write so a book. I did, and I'll I'll give you the nuts and bolts here. So it was when Noel was a year old. I decided that I would try to, in between semesters of teaching, I had a good two month break uh, from like Christmas break to when the classes start again. So you know you've heard of National uh, Nano Rimo, right? Uh, oh yeah. National Novel Writing Month. So I was like, you know what? If, if I had a friend who was teaching adjunct and writing, she did not na- uh, Nano Rimo, and I was like, okay, if Carrie can do this, I I'm going to give it a shot. Like. Um, there's no reason for me not to try. So I decided that I was going to give myself two months um, and I was going to write, pound out 50,000 words of this this rough draft. So I did that and then I put it aside and I was like, this is atrocious. I was like, this is the wor- This is never going anywhere. This is like the worst 50,000 words ever. And I just thought it was dead in the water. Then that fall, the, the next fall when I was teaching again, I started write, uh, meeting with a consultant at one of the schools where I taught to help faculty get published. And I thought, well, I'll just see what he thinks about it. So I went and I told him the idea of my book. And, and he was like, oh, that's a great story. He's like, oh, yeah, you definitely need to write that. And he really got put the wind in my sails to go back to it and look at it again. So I went back to it again. I saw the potential in it and I saw what absolutely needed to be trashed. And so I went through and I cut out all the stuff that needed to be trashed. And I think I maybe had like 20,000 words left, you know. And then I started from there writing my first draft. And that took a year. And I did that while I was teaching. And, you know, we just sort of juggled it like when Dwayne was in school. When he wasn't in school, he would stay home with Noel so that I could have extra time in the office to write. And I really, I wrote a lot during nap times and bedtimes. I mean, that's when I had the time to do it. And then I sent that first draft out to a trusted group of five readers to read it to me, or read it and give me feedback. The feedback I got was, yeah, you need to rewrite this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that good. This got a lot of significant weaknesses. Dr. Mary Brown, who is my English professor in undergrad and just the woman that really set fire to my, my love and passion for writing, I had asked her to read it. And, and her very gracious an accurate way, she came back to me and said, you know what, your heart and soul comes through with this, but there are a lot of weaknesses here. And I was like, okay. So I took it and I said, all right, I'm going to rewrite it from the beginning and I'm going to integrate the research into it. So by that point, I we had moved from LA to Washington for Dwayne's first job and I was not, I was pregnant with Nathan and I was not working. So I just stayed home with Noel that year that I was pregnant with Nathan, and that's what I did as I rewrote the book from beginning to end. And the following year, I pitched it to Wesleyan Publishing House, and they bought it. So that was sort of the process. But again, I did all of that in nap times and bedtimes. And every now and then I would, you know, Dwayne would take Noel and give me a Saturday morning so that I could write more. But I feel like, Eric, for me... I am more productive with the more sh- the mo- more structure I have. I was terrified before Noelle was born that I would never have any time to write. Now, I don't know what I did with all that time before she was born. I know I was fiddling it away. Because ne- once she came onto the picture, suddenly my time became precious. And it became much more structured. And I just have learned that I don't wait for inspiration to write. I just... If the time opens up in front of me, I sit down and I write. And it doesn't matter how good it feels or how bad it feels. I just, I do it. 
and then I have at least something to work with I can go back to and shape it. So I don't know if that's more information than you want, but that was that's the nuts and bolts of how I did this first book. So it doesn't even matter how good or, or you know, as long as you're getting the words down, you can go back later and fix it. Yes. It's that you keep going. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm, I am, that has been a philosophy that has changed my writing career. And Anne Lamott writes about it in her, her book, Bird by Bird. And that really set me free. Uh, I think the key as a writer is you have to be able to acknowledge the mental battle that's going on and all those voices in your head that are trying to shut you down before you even get started. And that's been a huge thing for me is there are so many times I'll sit down to write and I will be like, this is the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. No one is ever going to, if anybody ever read this right now, I would be so embarrassed. But I just have Anne Lamott's voice in my head uh, to just keep pushing forward. It doesn't matter how terrible it is. Just get it out there because I can always come back later and shape it and refine it and edit it. But those are really two different processes. First, you just need to generate the material. Then you can go back and shape it. Yeah. One of the things that I know you're not doing anymore, which Mm -hmm. you might do in the future, and I was privileged enough to take part of, was when you were doing individual online writing courses where Mm -hmm. you were teaching writing, and it was called The Blank Page. And Mm-hmm. through you working with the stuff that I was doing, which it, I just thought of that because you were saying this stuff was like, oh, this is horrible. Uh-huh. Um, I wrote some horrible stuff and then turned out to write one of the things I've been most um, pleased with ever, which was a kind of a an experience of my that my family had going through, or my perspective at least on it, of going mm-hmm. through my brother having uh, cancer when he was really young. Mm -hmm. And we were young in my family, but you're not doing it now. And I think that Mm -hmm. kind of attests to the fact that there, there are seasons Mm -hmm. and you can't say yes to everything. Yeah. You have to say no to some things. Yeah, that's absolutely right there. Yeah, there are seasons. And I think being realistic with yourself about that and also knowing that no is never indefinite, you know, like I, I probably will come back to the writing workshops eventually, um, I just, right now, you know, you know, we're putting them on hold. And I was talking about this with one of my friends uh, who just, her name's Kristen Ritzel, and she wrote a book called um, A Beautiful Mess, she, ahead of me. And she's really kind of been my good company through the experience of publishing and writing. And she's um, pregnant right now, and she was working on her second book. She's also getting her PhD, and she's teaching. And, you know, for this season, she's put her book aside and, and I, I think it's so healthy to do that, to give yourself permission to pick and choose things and know that just because you put something down doesn't mean that you're never going to get back to it again. It just means that for now, it's not the right time for it. And I know she'll get back to her book eventually, and there will be a time that opens up for that. And, and she knows that too, and she feels good about it. That kind of reminds me of almost a key, not to go spoiler about the book, piece Uh in your journey near the end where you talk about in your starting to get out of or start to to find land in the shipwreck, which Mm -hmm. was when you and Dwayne went on a marriage retreat and what you did when you did that. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did the uh, Gallup Strength Finders test. It was like a whole Strength Finders marriage retreat. We had to take this test before we went to find out what our top five strengths were. And then when we got to the retreat, we, we got to learn more about our own strengths and the other strengths and, and what they meant for us as a couple and individually. And it was a very enlightening weekend. <laughs> and if I'm correct, 
one of Dwayne's was responsibility. Uh-huh. And you kept thinking, well, that should have been me. Yes. <laughs> but then you kind of came to the revelation that his responsibility was because he was able to say no. Yes. <laughs> When he took it, he had communication and responsibility as one of his top two strengths. And I went, did you take this test for me? I was like, there's no way. I was like, you're always saying no to stuff. You're not responsible. I'm the one that's always taking on things. I'm responsible. Well, come to find out, responsibility, the strength of responsibility means you put your name to whatever you take on and you take it very seriously. And so you don't start something you can't finish and you can't finish it well. And so Dwayne, of course, was saying no because he was looking at these things going, no, I can't do that and do it well. I'm not going to take it on. Whereas here's little old me taking on all this stuff and doing, you know, a half-baked job at it or not getting it done and thinking I'm so responsible when actually he was the one that was truly responsible out of the two of us. So, yeah, it was a good learning experience. How many years had you guys been married at the time that that happened? Oh, I think it was like, I do. I think it was like five years, five or six. Yeah, I think it was five years. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. I, I, I ask that because can you imagine how your shipwreck, how you may have been more prepared for your shipwreck had you done that strength finders, say, during marital counseling? Yeah. Entering yeah. into the marriage at that point. I mean, as I read that, I thought, dang it. I wish my wife and I had done that. That would have made perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think when we took that strength finders, it changed our life because we had gone through shipwreck. I don't know if we would have been mm. as open to it if we had taken it earlier because we were rattled and shaken up at that point, And we, we were hungry for that kind of information. You know, I've, I've met people that have taken strength finders in college or they've taken it, you know, in their 40s and 50s, and it doesn't seem to really have that big of an impact on them. And when I think back to, like, why did that truly change our lives, I think it's because we were in a very vulnerable state when we took it. The rug had been ripped out underneath us, and we were searching for new meaning and purpose. And that test that weekend gave us, again, a new sort of language and vocabulary and a structure to begin to negotiate our future, making new meaning and finding new purpose for ourselves. So I don't know if it would have made that, I don't know if it would have made as big a difference for us okay. if we had taken it earlier. Yeah, because yeah, maybe it's, it's one of those things where it, you would have had it already, but it wouldn't have meant anything because you weren't in a place to really need you weren't in a place of need to have to draw from those strengths yes yeah so yeah and you know maybe had I taken it earlier I would have known a lot sooner that I wasn't cut out for the job I was doing at the time which was in the film industry uh so I don't know I think it would have changed my maybe it would have changed my story completely but it is what it is now right (laughs) so yeah well as you are writing the book now, and you're uh, a mother of two, and a wife, and teaching, yes, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody uh-huh. in closing. In an ideal world, how would you start your day? Oh, I love this question. In an ideal world, I would get up before the kids are up, do some yoga, go on to uh, doing some prayer time, you know, quiet time, uh, reading my Bible. Um, Christianity is my faith choice, so that's the way I would choose to to meditate. And then, you know, go on into the day getting dressed, taking care of the kids, getting, you know, getting our breakfasts and everything. And then, yeah, going off to work, doing my thing. One of the best things that we did for, for me coming here to Gettysburg 
was uh, because I was working again was being able to afford more childcare, uh, which has allowed me the kind of space to be able to do my work, do my writing, but also you know spend good time with the kids as well. So anyway, that's a, that is a great day for me that I spend about six hours working and then I get to spend the rest of the day with my kids and my family. I'm not distracted by the next essay or chapter that's in my head or the things that I need to grade. I get all that taken care of. I'm also um, an introvert, so I get a lot of energy from reading, writing, being, being quiet. So if I am have that, you know, go to work, teach my classes, have that quiet time to read, do lesson preparation, grade, then I'm energized uh, when I get home with the kids at 3 o'clock. And then we play, we do our thing, I make dinner, we spend the evening together. That is a perfect day for me. Any kind of way, because I know some for some people it's not necessarily as much about starting the day so much as setting the next day up the night before or mm-hmm. do you have any evening rituals? My evening ritual is to sit on, pop myself some popcorn, sit on the couch after the kids go to bed and read a book <laughs> and just decompress. And then I try to make Noelle's lunch for the next day. I make sure my bag is packed if I'm going, you know, I, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays I work from home, but on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, when I know I'm going to go into class the next day, I make sure my bag is packed and ready to go, that Noelle has her lunch ready. Uh, so it just takes a few things off my plate the next morning. But I, you know, what I remember uh, reading someone say that if they could stay away from electronics from like eight o'clock onwards, they would sleep better at night. Mm-hmm. And I have really found that to be true. So that's why I I love that time of the day. You know, the kids are in bed asleep and Dwayne and I are at home relaxing. And then I try to deliberately not look at my cell phone or get on email from 8 o'clock, 8, 9 o'clock onward because I find it, my brain then kicks into gear and I'm thinking about all these things and it's harder for me to get to sleep. Well, I know that your book is coming out incredibly soon. It's actually for pre-sale on Uh Amazon right now. Yes. And so I'll leave uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes which will be uh beyond the todolist.com/21. And so people will be able to go check that out, but if you would also like for them to check where you are on the web, where would they go? Uh they could go to kristentaylor.com. And my name is spelt a little bit strange. It's spelt C H R I S T I N. No e. And no k. So it's kristentaylor.com. You can read more about the book. You can read my blog. Awesome. Well, Kristen, it's been great catching up with you. Thank you again for coming on the show. I really hope that people will, one, check out the book, and two, check out your site, Uh and just really start to ponder what may be some things they weren't aware of that are are roadblocks that are holding them back from dealing with maybe Uh uh, what could be a better life for them. Yeah, yeah. I hope so, too. Thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I hope that you were able to hear the transition and the talk from the theoretical into the practical and maybe ponder some things you haven't thought about before in a different, you know, style or area of doing work and being productive and that it really does have a lot to do with where you are in life and what status or season you're in. And so I encourage you wholeheartedly to go to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com slash 21 and check out the book and other show notes there. 
the link to Amazon where you can order it as well as other places. Maybe it's not for you, but you know of someone who could benefit from reading this. And maybe that's who you would pass it on to. 